Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 37, The Day of Revenge, is upon us. The year 1943 brought a different kind of win to the general government. For the Germans, it was a cold, chilling win. But for the Polish, Jewish, and Gentile, the breeze seemed to lift them up and their endeavors. And not to mix metaphors, but the tide for Nazi Germany was turning. News of the Germans' despairing struggle at Stalingrad reached Warsaw. The Polish Home Army sent out their Boy Scouts, those youths too young to fight hand-to-hand against the occupiers, but were of an age to train to one day take the current fighter's place. Fourteenth, these children spent the entire night destroying every German street sign in Midtown of the capital. Also, they covered the area's walls with 40,000 insurgent leaflets. And on the morning of January 15th, before the Germans could plan a response, of the Home Army robbed several banks, assassinated numerous high-ranking German officials, and bombed establishments where only Germans were allowed to be, such as the Apollo Theater in Mitropa. During all this, Isaac Zuckerman was still laid up, and so may be excused for not knowing the Germans' planned reprisal. The same cannot be said for the rest of the ZOB's leadership council. Once to this Polish tyranny, the Germans planned on not only attacking the Gentile Home Army, but also planned on seeing an end to the remaining thirty-five to 40,000 Jews trapped in the ghetto. Ironically, the Jews and the Gentiles both firmly believed that the Germans did not have the manpower to attack both at the same time and quite honestly hoped the other side would be targeted first. They were all of them wrong. The home army was menaced constantly and methodically, and soon to the point where many of those soldiers around the capital actually snuck into deserted sections of the ghetto, deeming it safer. It was not. On January 18th at 6 a.m., 200 SS troops along with 800 Ukrainian and Latvian support troops, to trucks burst into the ghetto. As they jumped out and took up defensive positions, the freezing temperature showed hot breaths coming from their mouths. Trucks had made for a north-central location within the ghetto. It was there, near Goose Street, that the invaders could access the workers walking to work, as well as the nearby Umschlagplatz rail station. Like logs in a stream, the Germans and their allies waded into the river of moving workers and detoured parts of the lines, now guiding them to the station. The people, quickly waking up as to what was happening, pulled out their work permits, the one document that had saved them so far. But the men with guns grabbed the booklets and tore them in half, or simply threw them to the ground. The permits were now worthless, much like how the Germans viewed these terrified people. Some of the workers, knowing what it meant, simply refused to be redirected and paid for their defiance with their lives. Thoughts awoke Zuckerman and Lubetkin, who were four stories up and about 50 yards away from the train station, and from their height they could see this second gross action unfolding. Zuckerman wanted to rage 
where were our lookouts? Why didn't we know this was coming? But more importantly, where was their leader, Angel, Mordecai, and the Alawites? And what were they going to do next? But first things first. Dispatch runners were sent out to warn the Bundists. Next, a lookout was put at the apartment's window. Simha Rothhauser, who had just returned a few months ago, was given this assignment. He had the unenviable task of watching the first few hundred of the remaining 40,000 Jews being forced onto the platform. Now that the attackers were being watched to better protect this part of the ZOB's leadership, it was time to move on to their next priority. The remaining Jews could not be allowed to be taken away. It was time to break out the weapons, which meant all of three pistols and three grenades, which were kept in the apartment. Oh, there were certainly more guns and explosives, but the vast majority had been given to Mordek and his hit squads. But again, where was... My God, that's Angel! Simha shouted from the window. Everyone looked over at him. The young lookout was looking out the window, down at the train station. The ZOB leaders and their immediates rushed to the window. Angel and about a dozen young guards, the heaviest armed among the entire ZOB, were within a large group being herded down Low Street towards the trains. Zavia whispered that Angel had to be rescued. But how could they, with three guns and three grenades and still an injured Zuckerman? Zavia looked closer. Angel and his men, while walking in the same general direction as the terrified workers, were also moving themselves further from each other, but at the same time closer to the German and Ukrainian guards. Zavia watched as the ZOB leader thrust his hand into his pocket. The front of Angel went down after being shot in the back. Almost at the same time, a few other guards went down as well, shot by Angel's young guard. After that, there were so many people running in every direction. Any organized fighting was impossible. Angel allowed himself to be swept up by the current of screaming people. About the same time as Angel unpredictably fired his first shot, another unit of SS troops burst into the ground floor of Isaac's and Sevilla's headquarters. But this time, the rebels had had at least a few seconds to plan. Two men were stationed downstairs at the entrance of the building, pretending to be reading. Why this fooled the Germans is unclear, as everyone was supposed to be on their way to work. The invaders, upon seeing the surprised men as no threat, continued to make their way toward the stairs, obviously heading for the top floor. But just as the last two Germans turned their backs, the two men pulled out guns of their own and shot the two stragglers. Instantly figuring out they were trapped, the Germans backtracked quickly and made for the door. A young Jewish fighter with one of the pistols of Zuckerman's had come down the stairs and fired several shots at the retreating Germans. Another soldier was hit and had to be carried away. Although the Germans managed to take around 5,000 Jews to the nearby death camp by the end of the day, a number much lower than planned for, Angel's resistance would be remembered as the January Rising. Nearby, at the Gestapo headquarters on Such Avenue, the Germans considered their position. Many rebellions, assassinations, and violent theft had been on the rise from the Gentile Home Army. 
That was trouble enough. Now the relatively few remaining Jews of the ghetto were giving them trouble. But what's more, because of the Jews' fewer number and even fewer arms, their resistance could inspire the home army. Not that motivation seemed to be a problem for them. The home army had almost 400,000 registered members throughout the general government's area of responsibility. True, the vast majority of them were unarmed, but if they took the January Rising as a sign that change had come to the area, then there might be even more bloody battles in the days ahead. More days than not, Berlin was sending messages to send ever more men to the Eastern Front to replace losses there. Things did not bode well for the SS in and around Warsaw. The Home Army was inspired. Many, if not all of the next few editions of every illegal publication, wrote glowingly of the January Rising. Of course, the truth was quickly lost. That Mordecai had led the rebellion was true. That he was the only survivor after a 30-minute battle with the SS was, thankfully, most certainly not true. No matter, Angel was no longer a man. He had become a symbol. Freedom and hope for some, revenge for others. More worldly repercussions of the January Rising, the home army leaders had to admit now that if given weapons, the Jews would use them, and arrangements were being made. Came the uglier but realistic side of the organization, as the ZOB was now being called. Its soldiers needed guns, ammunition, food, and information, and some of that could be, and had to be, obtained from their own kind. So, a squad of roughs was put together. Simha Rothauser was one of them, and their job was to get free bread from underground bakers, and supplies from other Jews in hiding as well. Jewish businessmen had to pay the organization protection money, just like the mobs in the U.S., was needed to supply those fighting the Germans. Other rich Jews would find that their children had been kidnapped and only returned after a ransom was paid. Simply, it was the price of survival for the ZOB. Ackerman found out about a well-supplied but ultra-secret Gentile militant group called by the acronym PLAN. They had everything the ZOB could only dream of, and although they shared a vision of a Nazi-free Poland, the secret group kept to themselves, refusing requests for discussions with the ZOB. January Rising may have only taken the lives of ten German soldiers, but in February 1943, it got the ZOB 50 pistols and some grenades from the Home Army. Of course, Isaac and Zvia would have liked ten times that number, but it was more than they ever had before. At least someone was taking them seriously. But life goes on, even in the ghetto. During the day, many of the ZOB soldiers went to factories and half-heartedly produced goods for the German soldiers fighting for their lives on the Eastern Front. But at night, they would target practice. Well, to a degree, anyway. As bullets were even more scarce than guns, the young would-be soldiers had to settle for holding a pistol, looking down its barrel, and yelling, BANG! as they squeezed the trigger. 
it would have to do. But all the weapons were only trickling in. Information came much faster. Other military groups were willing to share information on how to build bombs and incendiaries, but were not willing to give over any materials for their construction. But again, it was something. Soon, dozens of crude devices were assembled and stored. For surely, the SS would be back, in larger numbers, and probably supported by artillery, if not tanks. The ZOB prepared as best it could. Then the ZOB leadership noticed that many, if not all, of the remaining Jews within the ghetto were also preparing for the next action. But they weren't building weapons or reinforcing areas to resist gunfire. Instead, they were digging deep, creating tunnels, storing what little supplies they could. And within an incredibly short amount of time, these hideouts were becoming quite sophisticated. The civilians' desire to live was just as strong. And Zuckerman decided to apply what he had seen to their own situation. Taking the layout of the ghetto into consideration, the ZOB set traps along the way they knew the Germans had to come to dig out the remaining Jewish civilians. Not knowing it, those wretched souls would serve as bait. Incredibly narrow tunnels were dug out in between buildings, allowing a person to shoot at the Germans from one area, then to crawl to another building quite quickly, pop up and again attack from a different angle or height. These kinds of dugouts populated throughout the ghetto and were stored with crude explosives. Next, the mistake of not having effective communication, like on the morning of the January Rising, was negated by breaking the ghetto into three separate areas, each with its own command and freedom of action. The largest enclave went to Angel, of course, the hero of the January Rising. Under his command were nine squadrons of fighters. Of course, not each person had a weapon, but for now, the organization of the fighting units was important. Angel's area of responsibility was in the center of the northern section of the ghetto, as it faced the Umschlagplatz train station, immediately to the north of the ghetto, where the prisoners had been loaded. The next largest section was under Zuckerman, who had eight squadrons. His area was where the main shops were located, just south of Angel's Enclave. The smallest area was in the upper left-hand corner of the ghetto, under Mark Edelman, and it covered the area to the left of the train station. To further prepare themselves for the expected attack, the Jewish warriors were required to leave their families and live with their respective squadrons. Never again would the ghetto be caught off guard like it had that cold January morning. And as February, March, and April went by, more guns were brought in. A few at a time, of course, as to not arouse suspicion. Gutters were taken down, cut into sections, and transformed into pipe bombs. Dynamite was smuggled in. Again, all this was stored up against the day the Germans returned. On April 12, 1943, the Home Army sent the ZOB a message that another delivery of weapons was ready to be picked up. But who should go? Angel had the most clout, but refused to leave. He did not want to chance missing the coming battle. So Zuckerman was tasked to go and set out that April. But what he didn't know was that he would never again be within the walls 
of the Jewish ghetto. Not had two nights together went by, with Zevia missing her lover, before a scout burst into her bedroom. She immediately thought of Isaac, but he was safe. Well, as far as the scout knew. No, the news he was delivering was less threatening to the young lady's heart. It was simply that the Germans were gathering outside of the ghetto, and according to the home army, the SS would storm the ghetto at daybreak and finish what they had started back in January. Zevia raced out of her room and spread the word. The ghetto was awakened. By 4 a.m., the ZOB members were in position. The rest, the civilians, were now deep inside their camouflaged holes and tunnels. The ZOB's 750 warriors were ready. Many were not armed. Those would have to wait until a comrade fell in battle to have a gun. But for now, those without weapons kept an eye out and grasped, instead of a pistol, a stick of dynamite, a Molotov cocktail, or one of the many, many pipe bombs. Seema Rothhauser was the first to see the Germans. But instead of coming in from the north, near the train platform, they entered the ghetto from the northeast corner and were soon crossing Cordial's Street. Seema figured out that they came from that direction because of the bigger opening, which allowed them to keep formation as they marched in. And what Seema saw shook him to his core. Row after row of helmeted soldiers came toward the north-central section, to Angel's area of control. But behind the men were tanks and artillery, armored vehicles, and row after row of Waffen SS units on motorcycles. But what came next scared the young man even more. Field kitchens, ambulances, and radio trucks. Clearly, the Germans planned on deploying here until every Jew was dead or taken away. Now that the German infantry was inside, they spread out and seemed to plan on hitting the central ghetto section from the north and south, which made sense. If you have superior numbers, why not use them to overwhelm your opponent? But then Angel, as too did Sevilla, notice the Germans' big mistake. To get to the entry points of the central section, the Germans had to walk through several choke points within abandoned parts of the quarter. It was their own fault, as they had determined where the walls of the quarter would go. And such was their arrogance, they ignored this tactical mistake and came on, although impressively, with their perfect line of troops. For the non-ZOB members of the ghetto, their world had been shrunk to the four fenced-in apartment complexes, their gates previously guarded by German soldiers before the first Axion. And now the SS were once again entering their world, lined up six abreast and singing the Horst Vessel song, the Nazi anthem their voices echoing off the nearby buildings, making their numbers seem limitless. As for Zevia, she was also witnessing their entry from her designated headquarters at the corner of Goose and Cordial Street. She had watched the Germans narrow their formation in order to enter the nearest gate, but Angel was already reacting because he was moving people into place on the top of the buildings to either side of the opening. And although Zevia and Simha were too nervous to accurately count the armed men coming at them, in truth, the rebels were barely outnumbered. The SS had 850 men, 
who were supported by 150 Ukrainian and Latvian auxiliaries. Of course, each of those men had a gun and plenty of ammo, not to mention the artillery, machine guns, and tanks behind them. On came the SS from the south and the north and the west. The central ghetto was expected to fall that very day. At the south entrance, where Zvia was, she smiled to herself as her enemy came on, smiled at their perfect formation, their lusty singing, because once the men passed through those gates, they were all treaded on crude but effective homemade bombs. And they came on, Zvia looking around, seeing her young chargers squeezing their pistols, their eagerness matched by fear. Not yet, she was thinking, and the others sensed this. They relaxed, though their bodies changed imperceptibly. By now, there were enough soldiers going by to make sure the bombs underneath their feet did the maximum damage, and someone yelled, Now! After the second it took for the signal to trace its way through the wires connected to the bombs below, Cordial Street shook with numerous explosions. The rebels had the sense to move back from the windows at the moment of the blast, but still were rewarded as the singing stopped, and in surreal slow motion, German helmets and body parts could be seen rising up parallel to their window or rooftop. Any view of down below disappeared under a cover of smoke, and slowly rising up through the debris, replacing the song, were the manifold moans of injured men below. Those that had survived the blasts started crawling or running, looking for a place to hide. And even before the smoke and dust cleared, those Jews that had guns started firing down on the trapped German soldiers. And trapped they were, because the foremost Germans were allowed to come up close to one end of the rebels' attack points. The other attack point was positioned behind the now-frazzled men below. If they moved at all from wherever they were hiding, to go forward or backward, they would be exposed. Unfortunately for the Jews, the majority of them that were sighting the enemy below missed with their shots. In fact, for some, this was only the first or second time of handling a gun. But no expertise was needed with a stick of dynamite or a pipe bomb. Those on the roof or on the third or fourth floor simply had to extend their arms over the edge or out the window, light and release. The results were deadly. Within seconds of the first blast at the south gate, the same kaboom, kaboom, and then moaning could be heard from the north and west gates. There, too, the Germans were forced, because of their own design of bobbed wire around the apartment complex, to navigate choke points. And there, too, the rebels had buried, weeks ago, their own IEDs. Chaos reigned on the streets. Time went by. Who could say for how long? But then the SS officers, safely to the rear, called in reinforcements. These unscathed soldiers' job was to locate any survivors and, with these additional numbers, move forward and find ways into the buildings the Jews were holed up in. Once they were all dead or captured, the civilians could be searched for and eliminated. So the SS reinforcements moved up, being screamed at by their superiors to hurry up. The men came forward and, surprisingly, were not met with gunfire and bombs. So they came on, getting ever closer 
to their comrades. Only when they had passed the first line of Jewish fighters, and so were now in between the lines of fire, did the rebels open up with their many pistols, some rifles, but many, many grenades and pipe bombs. And these explosions had their intended effect. The Germans, though relatively safe from the Jewish guns, simply could not hide from the shattering blasts coming from above. So, regardless of orders, no matter how loudly they were shouted at, the SS survivors started pulling back. It had not been a massacre. Not too many Germans died after the initial blasts. But the ZOB was using its environs to their best effect. By 8 a.m., the man in charge of the Axion, Colonel Ferdinand von Sammer Frankenegg, admitted out loud for all to hear, We can't get into the ghetto. Then he muttered their losses thus far. At least 12 men dead, many, many more wounded. A tank was destroyed, and two armored personnel carriers were currently ablaze. However, the man most interested in this report was General Stroop. He had been ordered to Warsaw personally by Himmler for just such an outcome. It would be his job to clean up any mess Colonel Salmon Frankenegg allowed to happen. The colonel was from Austria. He was an aristocrat. He was an intellectual. He had a Vaughn in his name. But most pathetically, he was weak. The SS represented Germany's future. Based on results and deeds, not births, this new ruling class had as an enemy, besides the Jews and the Slavs, the elite of the old Prussian Guard. Stroop, the son of a Berlin policeman, had risen impressively through the ranks by his deeds. If a Ukrainian village was suspected of hiding a terrorist, then Stroop saw to it that the entire village was eliminated, its crops destroyed, their animals shot and left to rot. And there had been many suspicious villages in Stroop's recent past. And now, here he was, a general of the SS. He would take control of the colonel's mess, take control of the ghetto, and then treat it like so many other enemies of his past. This was not an intellectual puzzle to be solved. This was war, where only one side survived. There were no rules. There was just survival. Besides, General Stroop had already picked out a 400-acre estate in the Ukraine he was going to have built up after the war. And this Jewish setback would be just one of the many steps he would have taken on his way to glory. Shroop looked at the men around him. I'm assuming command. Mobilize all forces. One from Central Virginia. So um, my completely random winner uh, for this episode is William H. from Chandler, Arizona. So William, when you hear this, just send me an email to wwiipodcast at gmail.com and I'll be happy to send out your mug to you or get your address. And not to offend anybody, please don't, please don't be offended, but I'm going to play a little bit of the Horst Vessel song just so everyone can get a sense of what the Germans were singing as they marched in to finish off the uh, the remaining Jews of the ghetto. <laughs> 